Heavenly Father, uh, God, we've been on this journey just learning about how to have life according to your Beatitudes, life in our homes. And Father, today's topic's a little bit of a tough one. Uh, Lord, I want to ask you to prepare our hearts for it. Lord, would you get us ready right now that we'd be willing to receive the teaching, receive your word. We'd be ready then, Lord, to put into action what we hear. Lord, I know you want to speak to all of us here in this room. Father, I pray this often because I firmly believe it, is that none of us are here by accident today. For some, Lord, this is the first time, maybe second time of worshiping at this place. For others, we've been doing this for years But Lord, you have a specific message for all of us, and we're here today because you want to speak to us. You want to to guide our hearts and our minds in your word. And so, Lord, I pray you do a great work in this room today. Father, help us to put to action what we hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are in the third week of a teaching series I've titled, Bringing Life to Your Home. That word life means bringing bringing blessing to your home, bringing joy to your home, bringing contentment to your home. We're looking at the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 that are referred to as the Beatitudes. That's what they're known as. And Jesus gave us eight different directives in the Beatitudes about how to have a life that is blessed. And so we're pulling out just a few of those and saying, let's apply those specifically to our family. When Jesus taught this, he was talking to a much broader range. He was talking to every single person, no matter where you're at in in life, that if you want to have a blessed life, here's what you do. But we're honing in it more specifically and saying, let's apply this to our family. Now, the thing is, is what we learned today about this, you can apply it way beyond just your family. But for our purposes, we're focusing in on what does this mean for our family? What does this mean for our relationships to have a life that is blessed? Many homes today, I believe, are are not blessed the way that God wants a home to be blessed. Many many families today are not experiencing the life or the joy or the contentment or the peace that God desires for us to have. The first week we looked at the beatitude, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And we talked about how a home that is hungering and thirsting for God, for His righteousness, for His scripture, for His word, that you will experience that blessed life, that joy-filled life. Last week, we looked at the powerful words that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And talked about how purity in the home, how important that is in order to have the blessing of life over your family. Today, I want to talk about peace in our homes. Many of our homes, I would say, are not characterized by peace in our culture today. I mean, if you take an honest look at families, at homes today, you would have to say that they're characterized maybe by conflict or tension or strife or stress or worry. And you probably see that, especially as you interact with people that you work with and they're sharing about what's going on in their family, what's happening in their home. You see, man, there's not a lot of blessing there. There's a whole lot of struggle. I believe God has a better way for us. He wants our homes to be characterized by being places of peace. Places of joy, places of life. Now, you may be thinking, Brian, you're talking to me right now. Brian, my family is one of those families you just described. My family has a lot of dysfunction in it. You may be thinking that, and you're you're peeking up, and you're listening intently already. For some of you, you may be thinking that and saying, my family has it, but it's not really my fault. I mean, I see it, but it's not really there. The reality of it is, it may be true. Maybe it's not 
mostly your fault. Maybe it's another family member. Every family. And maybe not right in your immediate family, but take that out to some aunts and uncles and some, some cousins and so forth. Every family has that crazy person, don't they? Every family has that psycho person who you're like, yeah, when they're around, they make things... Uh, let's, let me just prove it to you. Stop and think about who that person is in your family. How many of you have that psycho person in your family? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Now keep it up so we can see it. All right, now look around. You see all the hands that are risen? So those people know there's a psycho. Now, those of you who haven't risen your hand, it could possibly be you. <laughs> you're just not willing to admit it yet. It could possibly be you. Or you're like, I'm not participating in that preacher's shenanigans. I think it's a spiritual principle, right? I mean, it's a, let me, let me, I mean, just think about it. Every single one of us have someone in our family that kind of causes the conflict or the strife or make things difficult. There's somebody, because relationships are difficult and challenging. They're challenging. And it's amazing, especially in our families, how easy we can slip into dysfunctional cycles in our relationships, it can be going so good, and then it goes into dis- becoming a dysfunctional relationship. For example, when I was growing up, my sister and I had, I would say, the crazy cycle relationship, especially in our teen years. My sister's five years older than me, and then my brother's in the middle, two and a half years younger than her, and then I'm two and a half more years younger. And you put us together. Now, she's the oldest, and so I'm the baby. She is very strong-willed, and I'm meek and mild and gentle. Actually, it's like putting two bowls in the same room together. Very strong-willed people. And you put us in the same room together. And it's very interesting because two strong-willed people in a room together that were teenagers and neither of us knew what it meant to have the Holy Spirit control our emotions or our actions or our tongue. And so we could be in a room together interacting, playing, talking, whatever, and all of a sudden fireworks would just go off. It was like someone put a bomb in a room as we're now yelling and screaming at each other over something. And literally there was times I can remember as a young kid holding my sister against the wall, ready to hit her and thinking, if I do this, my dad's going to kill me. And my brother running up the stairs going, Brian, Lisa, stop. What are you guys doing? And he saved us from hurting each other. But it's how, how interesting it is that we could be yelling, profane each other, screaming each other, ready to hurt one another. And maybe let it calm down a few hours later, sometimes it's a few days later, be back playing together again, interacting together, loving each other again. But then something throws the bomb in the middle of the room and the crazy cycle starts all over again as we're yelling and screaming at each other once again. I think we'd have to admit that probably most of us have seen some kind of dysfunction in our family, unhealthy family dynamics. Sometimes it just boils down to, I'm mad at you. Yeah, I'm mad at you. Yeah, you said this. No, you did this. And we repeat this cycle and we say we never figure out how to deal with the challenge. And so we repeat the cycle over and over and over again where things are good and then things are rough. Things are good and things are rough. Things are good and things are rough. And it's a crazy cycle. I don't know what it'd be for you. Maybe you're trying to raise your own kids. And you feel like mom is looking over your shoulder and you're like, mom, stay out of this. I've got it. And mom's like, no, you need to do this. And all of a sudden it becomes a fight or an argument. Maybe that's a challenge you're dealing with. Maybe it's your own kids. Maybe they're fighting all the time. You're like, they're fighting all the time and they won't quit. And you're driving down the road and you're like, if you don't stop, I'm going to pull this car over. I'm going to count the three. One, two, three, four, five. And you, and you just keep going. You're like, you're, you're going to stop at some point. And you, by the time you get to 40, you're home. 
And you're like running to the bathroom, like I got to get a bath or a shower and get away from these kids. They're going to pull my hair out because they're driving me nuts. Maybe you are the kid. You're the teenager, and you think, my parents never trust me, and they're always breathing down my neck. I said that, and Caleb was in the front row this morning. He went, yep, that's my home. Maybe you're that kid who's just struggling because mom and dad doesn't give enough space. Maybe you're in that blended family, that home where you're trying to raise your kids and her kids and our kids, and there's exes involved, and it's so incredibly complicated, and you're wondering, how could there possibly ever be peace in that kind of situation with all these different moving parts? Some of you might be a place where to, to this day, you have not forgiven your mom and dad for something that has happened long ago, and it's affecting you right now in your own home. And God is saying, blessed is the peacemaker. And you need to hear this message. Today we're going to look at one of the Beatitudes of Jesus. And I have tremendous expectation that God is going to do some healing of some hearts in this room. That he is going to work on some of us and maybe have some, some things that we get through or get over. He's going to do a work in this room. Matthew 5, 9, he said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed. Happy are the peacemakers. Joy-filled are the peacemakers. Life is in the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemaker, there's two words from the original biblical language translated as peace. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Irene, and the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom, which we probably are more familiar with, and we probably have heard of that before. For years, the word shalom had been known as a, as a greeting. The original words for peace mean a little more than often what we think of when we think of in our English language. The word peace or shalom, it means more than just the absence of bad. It means I wish that you don't have hard times, but it also means, I wish you the highest good. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he doesn't just mean, I want your home to be strife-free, but I also want you to have the highest good. So I want no pain and difficulty, but I want great stuff for you. Have a home of life, of excitement inside of it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now when Jesus said this, just like the other seven Beatitudes, everybody listening would have been shocked. I mean, these were very countercultural statements because everyone there had been raised with a mindset, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and someone hits you, then you turn around and hit them back. Someone steals from you, then you go and you take things from them. He was saying something that was very shocking, blessed are the peacemakers. People would be like, what are you talking about? That's not common today. What he's saying is there's a higher calling for those who believe in Jesus as their Savior. For those who are followers of Christ, there's a higher calling. Notice, he did not say, blessed are the peace, peacemakers. He, he didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. There is a big difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. What's a peacekeeper? A peacekeeper often will avoid conflict to, quote-unquote, keep the peace. A, a, a peacekeeper. Keeper wants to work their way around the issue instead of trying to deal with the issue because they want to keep the peace. We kind of get to this place where we're like, ah, let's just make a truce and let's not just talk about it and let's kind of sweep it underneath the rug. 
let's get together for a family dinner, we'll say. And when we get together, you know if you're just trying to keep the peace and you're like, oh, we're going to family dinner. Now, everyone put on your smile. Hi, how you doing? Everything good? Yeah, everything's good. And you put on that fake smile when all inside you're like, I don't want to be around my family right now. I don't want to be around that person because right now that person drives me crazy and I don't want to interact with them. You know that you're just trying to keep the peace. When you do that sometimes for months or sometimes for years and all of a sudden one person says something and all of a sudden an explosion happens. You're like, rah, 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 why you say that? I'm sick and tired of you. Yeah, I'm sick and tired of you. You said this. Well, you did this. And all of a sudden, there's an explosion within the family because the family's just trying to keep the peace versus being peacemakers. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. What will a peacemaker do? A peacemaker will embrace conflict to learn how to keep to, to make peace. We're, we're not going to work around the issues. We're going to face the issues straight on. We'll work right through them. With the help of the Prince of Peace being Jesus, we believe that there can be peace in our homes, but when there's conflict or challenge or strife, we'll deal with it in a Christ-centered way, which brings us to our key thought in this series. We don't want to be just a Christian home. We want to be a Christ-centered home. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? Well, they should be the same thing, but in our culture today, there's a huge difference, unfortunately, because in our culture today, the word Christian doesn't mean what it used to mean. It doesn't mean it. There are some 80% or more of our culture in America that will say, well, I'm a Christian, but you'd have to agree that there's probably over 80% of our homes would not be called Christ-centered in the way that we live. See, a Christ-centered home is not saying that Jesus is part of my life, that I just add Jesus to my life. Then we're saying Jesus is my life. Jesus is first place in my life. Jesus is more important than my husband or my wife or my children or my job. Jesus is first, and we're devoted to Jesus. We're devoted to knowing Jesus and following Jesus and putting Jesus at the center of life, and he directs everything we do. That's a Christ-centered home. See, in a cultural Christian home, It's in a home where we're Christian in name only, but when there's a hard time, we just kind of write somebody off. We have thoughts and we'll say, well, just screw them. Forget them. They are mean to you. They are terrible to you. Forget them. We're in a mess. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to interact with them. Forgive them? I mean, after what they did, how could I forgive them? They're going to have to earn their way back into my life. They're going to have to pay a penalty. They're going to have to really come back begging to me if they want to be back in my life because that's what our culture teaches culture says someone does you wrong, just write them off. Just tell them I'm finished with you. And that's normal. In a Christ-centered home, we say, what does Jesus teach about relationships? In a Christ-centered home, we say, what does God's Word say about what's going on right now? In a Christ-centered home, we say, well, how do I do this? How do I live out the Scripture? In a Christ-centered home, we say, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so we say, how can I bring peace to this situation? Paul addresses this in Romans 12. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, for those of you sitting back and going, I hope so-and-so hear this. For those of you maybe have already thrown an elbow or patted a leg, and so are you listening? I, I, I I want to ask you, let God speak to you for a moment. Look again at what the Scripture says. It says, as far as it depends upon you. As far as it depends upon you. In other words, this is written personally. This is not written for us to go, are you listening? 
This is not written for us to be thinking about other people. Go, man, I hope they hear this scripture. Oh, you know what? I could tweet this. Oh, my goodness, I could send that to them in an email. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to put it on Facebook, and hopefully they'll hear that section. No, this is for you. This is for me. This is for us sitting in this room to hear this very personally, that God says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with some people. No, that's not what it says. Live at peace with everyone. Then verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but instead, we're going to overcome evil with good. Wait a minute, you mean when someone treats me wrong, I treat them good? Yep. You mean when someone speaks ill of me, I speak kindness of them? Yep. You mean when someone's mean to me, I'm kind with them? Yes. Yes. I know, it's not what our culture teaches. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If we're going to be Christ-centered home, and we're going to be peacemakers, then what do peacemakers do? How, how do we live this out? Let me give you three things they do. First of all, they tell the truth in love. They tell the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. In other words, there may be some difficulties. There may be some things that hurt, but we speak them in love if we're a Christ-centered home. Notice it doesn't say we yell the truth in love at them. It doesn't say we yell at them. You, 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 you always leave your clothes out here. That's yelling. That may be truth, but it's not going to be heard. You're always on the phone. It drives me crazy. That's yelling. That's not bringing it in love. You are so stupid. Surely not bringing a message in love. We tell the truth. How do we do that? Well, how do we tell this truth in love? Tell the truth in love, may I suggest, during non-conflict times. Don't bring up truth when the, when the sparks are already flying. Brian and I have been married almost 23 years now. It took a while to learn that, but we'd have some, some healthy arguments, so to speak. And I used to think the great thing would do is, like, well, we're arguing. Well, let me just throw in a couple others and let's deal with them all at the same time. That's like putting fuel on the fire. And it's just going just gonna to blow up. In other words, if someone is throwing a shoe at you because they're angry, it's not time to raise a new issue. Save that for when the conflict is gone and when there is peace, when maybe you're out to dinner and you're enjoying a little dinner and you say, hey, honey, can I talk to you about something? The other day you said something like this. I said that? Yeah, can we talk about that? Yeah, let's deal with that. While things are calm, while we're not mad at each other, we work on a non-conflict time. Secondly, we attack the issue and never attack the person. You start attacking the person, you're attacking who God has blessed you with in terms of your spouse or in terms of your kids or in terms of a family member or in terms of a, a work relationship. We confront the issue, never the person. Non-conflict times, we confront the issue. Let me just give you some examples. I made some statements up that may be helpful to, for you to think about this. For instance, you may say, when you don't listen to me, I feel like you don't value me. Now that's a statement. This is how I feel when you do this, confronting the issue. What's the issue? You're not listening to me. And so that's fair to say that in a relationship, in a non-confrontational time, to bring up truth. Or when you lie to me about something, I find it difficult to trust you. What's the issue? There's a lack of trust. Someone lying to you. And so you're going to bring that up in a, in a kind, loving way that I find this to be a difficult thing because you, you lied to me. Here's another one. When you continue to check your phone at the dinner table, the rest of us feel devalued. We feel like we're not important because you're on your phone while we're trying to sit down and 
have dinner. That's confronting the issue, the phone at the dinner table, but said in a loving way. Let me pause there for a minute on that one. I think all of us need to hear this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, put your phones down. Put them away. And enjoy dinner with your family. Now, I know for some in this room, be like, I don't know how to have that conversation. Just start practicing having a no-phone zone. The table at dinner time, the table at breakfast time, the table at lunch time, when you sit down, in my humble opinion, should be a no-phone zone. Put it aside. Some of you all, I'll give you a business idea because you guys are much smarter than me about figuring out businesses, but I think you could make some money on this if we created a no-phone zone like box and on the outside of the box could be like discussion questions that you could kind of print and they could be changed out every now and then. And you could go down to restaurants and you could sell them boxes for the table and if people use it at the table at the restaurant, they get a 5 or 10% discount on their bill. Because then they put their devices in there and they look at each other eye to eye and they try to talk. I know it's not normal in our society today, but it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes we just need to put it aside. Confront the issue, not the person. The second thing is this, what do we do as peacemakers? Peacemakers also apologize when they're wrong. Apologize when they're wrong. Now, Brianna was in here in first service, and I know she was sitting back there thinking, oh, I'd like to hear him talk about this one. She probably should be the one up here talking about this for our family because this is one of the hardest areas for me because even though inside of me I'm going, I need to apologize, I've been wrong. For some reason those words just don't want to come out of my mouth. They're like, okay, but... And they just they get stuck at the tip of the tongue. Anybody else understand that with me? I'm the only one. Man, I feel very lonely. Okay, there's a few of you now are admitting, you know. It's really hard sometimes to apologize. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. I want you to think for a moment about this. Think about this for a second. What do you think your relationships would be like if when you sinned, you confessed it and you said, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And now let's pray about that. Oh, that's countercultural. You, you mean to apologize and not only just apologize, ask for forgiveness, and then you mean pray about it? Yes, I'm sorry I did this. Will you forgive me? Hey, God, we need you right in the back in the center of this relationship. Right back in the center of this relationship. Mom-dad relationship, son-daughter relationship, whatever it is. Can you imagine how incredibly different our relationship would be if we owned our sins, if we confessed them, and then we prayed together? That would be a transforming thing to do in your family. That could save a lot of families from a lot of hurt. Peacemakers apologize and we're wrong. How do we do that? We admit specific actions. Specific actions without excuses. We admit specific actions. We say, here's what I did wrong with no excuses. We don't come up with a lot of excuses. You don't dare say, well, sorry I looked at something that was inappropriate, but if you'd been meeting my needs, you wouldn't have driven me to do that. That's not an apology. That's called wimpology. You're wimping out on what the truth is, that you were looking at something inappropriate. You don't say, I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt, you big old baby. That's not an apology. That's deflecting what you've done wrong. We apologize for specifics. I am sorry that I belittled you in front of your friends. I had no excuse for that. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? That's very specific. I'm really sorry I didn't consider you. I should have called when I was running late, and I can understand why you would be so worried. Would you please forgive me? I'm sorry I raised my voice at you like that. That was so disrespectful. Please, please forgive me for that. There's a big difference. And don't miss this between remorse and repentance. There's a huge difference between remorse and repentance. So often people stop with remorse. 
It's kind of like this, well, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry we're having this hard time. I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. I'm sorry we're going through this. Those are all statements of remorse. Repentance is, I was wrong. I I sinned against you, and I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? See, when you sin, you don't stop with just, I'm sorry. Sometimes I see that with parents. Johnny hurts Sally. Johnny, go tell her you're sorry. I'm sorry. We didn't teach them anything. All that is is some remorse. We should teach them to go over and to say to Sally, Sally, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I, I took a toy from you, or I yelled at you, or I did whatever. And give Sally a chance to respond and say, thank you for, for expressing sorry. Please don't do that again because it hurt my feelings. And then for Johnny to say, would you please forgive me? And express Sally, yes, I'll forgive you. To teach children at a young age. Because most times we don't. We just think, well, I'll just go say I'm sorry. See, repentance is I was wrong. I, I'm sorry is for mistakes. Will you forgive me as for sin? And we do make mistakes. I'm sorry that I left the toilet lit up. Okay, that's a mistake. All right? Say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for deceiving you? That's dealing with sin. Don't just stop and I'm sorry, but when you've actually sinned against someone, to actually ask them, will you please forgive me? It rebuilds the relationship. Blessed are the peacemakers, so they'll be called children of God. This may be difficult to listen to. It may be hard to hear, but we're not just a Christian family. We, we're not just a culturally Christian family. We're not just a Christian in name. We're a Christ-centered family in all we do. If we want to be a Christ-centered family, then we live not just in a world of sorriness, but we live in a world of forgiveness and owning our sin. Christ calls us not to just wish absence of harm, but to hope the highest of good causes us something more. So we tell the truth in love. We apologize when we're wrong. And thirdly, peacemakers forgive and let go. Forgive and let go. Now, I want to approach this section as gently as I possibly can. This is a little bit harder, but it needs to be said. I know in a room this size, between first service and second service, and the number of people that are in here, there's a potential of tremendous amount of pain in this room. Some of you may be thinking right now, well, yeah, Brian, you live in your preacher world. You, you live in that world, and it's a special place, but problems probably are nowhere near like the problems I have. I, I just want to say to you, I, I may have not walked what you've walked through. I may not been down the roads that you've been down. And I understand that betrayal can be very difficult, to, and I somewhat understand that. Some of you, your spouse betrayed you, committed adultery, maybe multiple times, and you think, how can I possibly forgive them? There's no way. I know some of you, you've got someone that you trusted with everything, and they lied, and they deceived you, and you let them in your life, and now you're really hurt. And you say, how can I possibly trust them? I know some of you in this room, many of you have someone in your family who was supposed to protect you and that person should have protected you, but they took advantage of you and they abused you and you say, how in the world can you tell me, Brian, to forgive that person? I want you to know I'm not telling you. The Lord Jesus is telling us through his scriptures that we need to live in forgiveness. I'm not going to tell you it's easy, but I believe it's doable and it's incredibly important in a Christ-centered home. And quite possibly, if there's some strife or difficulties in your home, it's because you're holding on to unforgiveness of something in the past. 
Colossians 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. How do we forgive that which seems unforgivable? Paul said we do it this way. Paul said, forgive as the Lord has forgave you. You say, is that possible? I believe it's possible. Forgiveness enlarges our future from a young lady who wrote that in her journal, the last entry where she was killed in the Virginia Tech shooting. Forgiveness enlarges our future. Let me ask you again. How do we forgive? We forgive as the Lord forgave you. Think about it with me for a moment. I mean, how has God forgiven you? Go ahead and start making your mental list. Start to think about your sins. Think about your past. Think about maybe even this past week where maybe you have fallen short and think, God has forgiven me for that. I know I start making my list. I start thinking about the things where I've screwed up, the things where I have fallen short, and my list gets long, and I stop and go, but God has forgiven me for all of that. Every single bit of it. Has the Lord forgiven you for a lot of stuff? We're to freely forgive as He has forgiven us. That's how we're called to forgive, to freely forgive as He's forgiven us. That's what Christ-centered homes do. They freely forgive. I, I want to say one thing to you, and if you only remember one thing out of this entire message, if you're taking notes, if you haven't taken notes, this is the one thing to, to write down. Listen clearly and listen carefully. Family is worth it. Family is absolutely worth it. You do not want to go through the experience of having a wedge in your family where you don't talk to a mom or don't talk to a dad or talk to a sister or talk to a brother because they did something or you did something. I have that in my family and it stinks. I have a cousin I grew up to, grow, grew up with very close to. Something went on with her mom and dad. To this day, I can't tell you what it is, but for 23 years, I've not seen or heard from her because she wrote off the entire family. And it hurts all of us to this day. Family is absolutely worth it. There are some of you in this room that call yourself Christian and you're not acting like it because you're holding on to things that you need to forgive somebody for. Family is absolutely worth it. If we're followers of Jesus, what do we do? When someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to the other one also. When someone asks us for our shirt, we give them our coat as well. What we don't do is this. When marriage gets tough, just walk out and say, forget you, I'll take my stuff, you take your stuff, I'm done with you. That's not what a Christ-centered home does. What we don't do is we don't write off our children when our children have fallen short and they have screwed up and say, you're a screw-up, I want nothing to do with you. That's not what we do as a Christ-centered home. What, what, what we don't do is we don't walk away from our in-laws and say, my in-laws are annoying and they drive me crazy. That might be annoying and it might drive you crazy, but one day you're probably going to be an in-law. And you'll be driving your son-in-law or daughter-in-law maybe crazy or you might be a little annoying. We don't walk away from family. We don't cut family out because family is absolutely worth it. We've been forgiven much 
And we must give forgiveness. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. If we're followers of Jesus, this goes way beyond just blood family. If you're in the family of God because of the blood of Jesus, you have a much larger family. It's called the church. And we don't look at someone and say, oh, you messed up. I write you off. I'm done with you. I'll never interact with you again. I won't be in a Bible study with you. I don't want to serve with you. Forget you. No. See, if we're family, and, and we're not just blood family, we're family because of the blood of Jesus. When we act like Christ, and we forgive, and when we act like Him, and we show mercy, and we act like Him, and, and we make peace, we're called children of God. Children of God. I have three kids. Most of you know who they are. They all look a little bit like me, but two are lucky because they look a whole lot like Brianna. Then my twin has been cursed. And guess what? They do a lot of things like me. They think like me. They act like me. They walk like me. And as I get older, I notice more and more, I do a lot of things like my mom and like my dad. I'm like, Glenn Bolton, go away. No, don't come out of me anymore. Mom, why'd you just say that? It was me that was saying that. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. As you get older, you go, man, I do a lot just like my mom or just like my dad. And my kids will do a lot of things just like that. And guess what? When we make peace and we do everything possible, live at peace with everyone, and when we even take and let someone hurt us and we freely forgive them, guess what we look like? We look like our Heavenly Father. We look like our Heavenly Father, God, because we're created in His image, conformed to the likeness of His Son. And when people in this world see that, they say, I want what you have. I want that kind of family. And churches that are healthy, they give and forgive and freely forgive because we will wrong one another and we ask for forgiveness when we've wronged somebody. We aren't just a cultural Christian family We're a Christ-centered family. Hear this and never forget it. Family is worth it. It's worth it. If we're going to call ourselves follower of Christ, we're going to honor Him by loving the way He loved. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God.